Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today we're going to talk about the science and philosophy of happiness. Oh, I'm so happy. Oh, me too. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to talk about the different things that people mean when they talk about happiness, because there's a, a lot of different concepts being lumped together under that label. And we'll talk about whether happiness is the sort of thing that we can even objectively measure, whether we can compare happinesses between different people, between different countries, or even between different periods in a single person's life. And then we'll also try to look at the question of whether happiness is is a good goal to pursue for individuals and also for societies. All of that in 45 minutes. Yes, all of that in 45 minutes. That's the magic of rationally speaking. All right. So uh, since we have so much time, I think I, we should start 2,400 years ago. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Taking right. the long Take route. us back. Right. So th- the reason I want to go back there briefly, uh, obviously we're not going to stay there too long, um, it's because for the ancient Greeks, um, particularly, of course, the, the usual suspects, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all those people, uh, that was the crucial question of philosophy. And in fact, that was even the crucial question of ethics. So these days, we talk about ethics and morality as um, dealing with questions of right and wrong. Um, so you, you, know, you have utilitarian ethics, you have Kant, you have all this other stuff. But for the ancient Greeks, if you had walked up to Aristotle, for instance, and, sat and, and told him that that's what you meant by ethics, he would have looked at you with a strange look on his eyes and said, what are you talking about? It's not that the Greeks were not interested or were not aware of differences between right and wrong. It's just that they didn't think that they were that important in terms of philosophical pursuit. The philosophical pursuit, the question was, how are you supposed to live your life? Um, Now, they came up with this concept of um, the, the word in Greek is eudaimonia, which literally means good demon, by the way, having a good demon. Um, and eudaimonia loosely translates in uh, as happiness or well-being or flourishing, you know, or all of the above. Really, uh, the, the reason I say that translates loosely is because it, for the Greeks it did have these these ethical implication. That is, eudaimonia is not just the the life you should live, you want to live. It's the life that you ought to live, the life that you should live if you are a, a normal, functional human being. Hmm. So, did they take that to be self-evident that the life you the life of flourishing is life that you should live, or did they no, have arguments for that? No, the, the, the ancient Greeks rarely took anything as self-evident. All but right. uh, in this particular case, yes, there are several um, um, arguments about why one should live that kind of life rather than another. We, we probably don't have time to get too much in details, but but um, the most famous one of the most famous ones is in the Republic, uh, Plato's Republic, where uh, Glaucon, one of the minor characters who usually talks to Socrates and says, yes, Socrates, you're right, uh, in that case poses the question of, you know, why should we uh, pursue an ethical life or a particular kind of life as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, although Glaucon didn't quite put it that way. And Socrates does go, uh, go into, a, into an interesting um, discussion there of why this should be, and, and Plato makes Socrates connect that 
to also what a good state is. After all, the republic is about good government, you know, the ideal right. state. Um, and uh, there's this interesting connection between the, the idea that Plato has that, that um, there's a, a deep connection between having a good society, a fair society, or, or, or a thriving society on the one hand, and having a good life as an individual on the other hand. The two were seen as two aspects of the same thing. In that one causes the other, or that they each cause each and other? And then one can be used as a model for the other. Oh, yeah, okay. They need to be in synchrony. <clears throat> so anyway, the, the, the Greeks had this idea of eudaimonia. They also realized, though, particularly Aristotle, that there was a problem. Aristotle was a very good observer of human nature. And he realized that although, even though we know that we need to do certain things, that we ought to do certain things to be happy in the eudaimonic sense of happiness, we also are constantly dragged back by our human nature, in particular by what he called akrasia, which, which means the weakness of the will. So, you know, the typical example is, I know that it would be better for me not to eat that double cheeseburger, and it would be, in fact, better for me to go exercise at the gym. The problem is it takes a lot of energy to go exercise in the gym, a lot of willpower, and it takes also a lot of willpower not to eat the double cheeseburger, so I might end up, in fact, doing the latter and not, and not the first. And for Aristotle, the, the struggle for human beings was, was this idea that we know what's best for us in the long term, a lifetime, lifelong happiness, uh, but we are constantly struggling against the immediate, uh, the temptation from the immediate reward. Mm-hmm. See, you know, I think the idea that we know what's best for us in the long run is an interesting one because the the recent empirical study of happiness, um, happiness studies, it's usually referred to as happiness science, uh, has actually come out with a lot of counterintuitive findings. Um, I should also mention that this is a, a pretty young field. Uh, interestingly, despite the fact that the Greeks were studying or were were talking and debating about happiness and what makes a happy life thousands of years ago, psychology as a field has only come to the problem relatively recently. So traditionally, psychologists have studied psychological problems, and the profession has been about trying to identify and fix things that are going wrong with our psyche. So there's a huge body of research on depression and anxiety and so on, what causes them, how to treat them. And then there's this new movement in the field that says, okay, instead of just trying to reduce negative things like depression and anxiety, let's also try to figure out how to increase positive things like happiness, well-being, all, all, those, right. all those concepts. Um, the movement was really spearheaded by a psychologist named uh, Martin Seligman, who gave it the name Positive Psychology. And it's become hugely influential in the last 10 years. You've probably noticed the spate of books about yeah. happiness that's come out recently. I think one of them, uh, Stumbling on Happiness, was a pick of mine. And, and one of our repeat guests here on Rationally Speaking, Jennifer Michael Hecht, has written a book called The Happiness Myth. Yes, although she was fairly skeptical, if I recall, of, of happiness research. Sure, um, yeah. And I, I don't want to complain yes. all of this as being positive psychology in mm-hmm. particular, because right. there's a lot of researchers who are just interested in studying happiness who, don't actually, who aren't actually interested in making prescriptions. Right. But So let's talk about some of the findings, whether tentative or, or certain, uh, that have come out of the recent field of happiness studies. One of the more counterintuitive and somewhat controversial findings is, that, is the idea of happiness set points, that right. people have these built-in these set points um, due to genetics meaning that even when very good or very bad things happen to them, their happiness will go up or down initially, but then it pretty quickly returns to the level of happiness that they had before the big event occurred. And the typical examples are winning the lottery and becoming a paraplegic. So if you ask people to predict how happy they would be one year after each of those events, people predict that they would be very happy a year after winning the lottery and very unhappy a year after becoming paralyzed. But then if you actually ask actual lottery winners and paralysis victims... Uh, a, a year after those events happened, they're about as happy 
as other people. Right. See, yeah, that, that's fairly obviously counterintuitive finding. Now, uh, some of the research I looked into um, uh, suggests that there are different components of uh, variation for happiness between different people. So we're now talking about uh, not the average happiness in the population or the average happiness degree in a lifetime, in a person's lifetime, but variation in happiness among individuals of a population. And I found this, this, this particular finding uh, interesting. Um, the, the results seem to show that about 50% of the differences in happiness among people are due, in fact, to their sort of set points. There is some, as you know, there is some discussion whether the set point is really a set point right. or whether it varies actually to some extent during lifetime. But let's assume and that more or less it is. The 50% figure, is that from studies of, of twins, comparing the lifetime happinesses of twins who grew up in different environments? Um, they used several set data points. I'm not sure that there, that there was twins in that. Now, this is not, these are not studies of irritability. These are st- just studies of variance, statistical variance in the population. So, so these are correlative studies, essentially, um, saying, okay, well, people, once you account for, say, the a set point, um, how much of the remaining variance in happiness is explained by other factors. That oh, I see. Thing. It's I, a typical approach in social sciences uh, that, but that doesn't deal with whether these are genetic bases or not, which would be the question asked by heritability, I mean, uh, sorry, twin studies. I see. I know they right. have done twin studies yeah. where they, yes. they compare twins and found similar levels of happiness despite right. very different circumstances. Right. But no, they, they have. But in different. this case, this is not a matter of, uh, that, that I'm referring to are not addressing the question of whether the set point or other causes of happiness are genetically based, in part genetically based or not. The, the question is, is more general is, well, what are the factors that uh, explain difference in, in differences in happiness among people? So about okay. 50%, as, as I said, apparently is due to, uh, to the set point. Mm-hmm. As you were saying, you know, people bounce back to whatever level they had after, even at, after major events. Another 10% uh, is, is the result of circumstances that people find themselves in. Uh, and forty percent are uh, is is the result. Forty percent of the variance in happiness is the result of actively um, uh, of activity that people do in order to increase their own happiness. Okay, mm-hmm. so the idea is therefore that if you want to increase your happiness, you can't probably change your set point by by much because for whatever reason it is in fact set. Um, there is not much that the circumstances have to do the specific circumstances in which you find yourself uh, uh, have to do with your. Uh, degree of happiness, unless they're extreme circumstances. I mean, obviously, if somebody's you know being tortured, um, even Aristotle said, you know, in order to be to pursue uh, eudaimonia, you have to have to be free of certain constraints. And one of the constraints is you have to be reasonably healthy and reasonably wealthy, and so on and so forth. If you're really dirt poor or in pain all the time, it's hard to imagine how can you be happy. Mm-hmm. But given that, setting that aside, uh, the major thing you can do, therefore, is in fact to increase to to um, Engage in purposive activities that are going to increase uh, your overall level of life satisfaction. And that does have a significant effect because it, it accounts for about 40% of the, of the variation. The question, of course, is well, what kind of activities? Right, right, exactly. And I think it's important to note that the, the findings about circumstances not affecting your happiness that much over the long run, they're looking at... at the circumstances that people actually find themselves in, but there, but that doesn't actually uh, leave out the possibility. It doesn't rule out the possibility that there are there are situations that you could actively pursue that would make yourself happier if you knew right. the right situations to put yourself in. Right. And in terms of the activities that you're were referring to, um, 
I've found some examples from the field of positive psychology that seem empirically to actually improve people's happiness over long periods of time. Things like uh, thinking about what you're grateful for, so actually focusing on the good things instead of uh, just neglecting them after they happen, um, seeking out and forgiving people who've done you wrong, um, pursuing meaningful personal goals is a big one. There was one study in which they asked people to reflect on their strengths, their, the skills that they have that they're, most, that they're best at and, and their, um, the traits that they're happiest with, and then, then do a different thing every day or every week that actually employs those skills or, the, or uses those traits. Um, and in the study, they gave people the instruction to do this for one week, but then they checked back with them one month and six months later to see if there was any lasting effect of, of happiness. And for those things, there, was, uh, f- there, there wasn't as much of a lasting effect for other um, possible happiness-increasing activities. Yeah, so that one of the, the, the findings of that research, actually, again, would not have surprised Aristotle because, uh, at all because the, the general idea seems to be that if you want to be happy, you don't just go after uh, pleasure. Uh, that, that's what psychologists often refer to as the hedonic ma- treadmill. Uh, the idea that if you just want you know, short-term um, uh, things that increase your, your pleasure, uh, whatever those may be, um, buying a second car, buying a new whatever you know, it is that you feel be- good about doing, um, those, are never, th- those always give you a very short-term boost, and then you go back to the, to the base level, and that's why, as I said, they call it the hedonic uh, treadmill. Uh, it's, it's essentially keep, you keep running just to keep the, in, in, the, in the same place. Those don't seem to have an effect on long-term happiness. What does seem to have an effect are the things that you're talking about, which are more about manf- mindfulness, about thinking about what is, you know, doing things and thinking about things that make your life meaningful. Again, this was exactly the contrast between the acrasia and eudaimonia that Aristotle was talking about, which, which I find very interesting. Um, there is uh, something that I wanted to bring up in, uh, in this regard that I, that I found interesting, too, which is uh, let's go back for a second again to, to the ancients um, and, uh, for, for, a, for a reason that actually connects, again, with uh, recent research. So another of the ancient philosophers who wrote a lot about um, happiness was Epicurus. And for Epicurus, um, uh, friendship was a crucial component of being happy. That is, he, he simply could not conceive of somebody having a happy life in the sense of a eudaimonic life uh, without having a, a good, solid network of friends. And we're not talking about Facebook friends. We're not talking about you know, thousands of people that you barely know or don't know at all. We're talking about actual uh, you know, close friends with, with whom you interact on a, on a regular basis. Although Facebook friends might actually increase happiness. Don't just assume that they don't. Because I, I would be willing to bet that if, if someone looked at that empirically, it had some effect. Uh, well, you're on with that bet. We'll, we'll right. see if we can find a study uh, because I would be very skeptical of, of any long-term. I mean, I, I suspect that, that the Facebook friendships are more along the lines of the hedonic treadmill. Um, you have to have more and more and more interaction of that sort, but they don't really change things in the long run. Mm. Unless we're talking about, depends also on, on how you use Facebook, of course. Um, unless you're talking about that small subset of people, for instance, the way I use Facebook on my personal page is I only have friends who actually I know personally and have deep ties with mm-hmm. or members of my family, in which case Facebook simply becomes an, extent, an extension of regular interactions with your real friends. Mm. But well, the thousands of friends, so-called, that you have on Facebook, I really doubt that they're going to give you anything in terms of long-term meaning. Well, I, I have a lot of friends on Facebook who I've never met on real life, but 
but I have these really interesting conversations with them on my Facebook wall whenever one of us posts an interesting sure. link and so on. So, and I feel like that actually, it's not the same. It's just a different thing from real life friendships, but it's right. still positive. Anyway. No, no, no I, I completely agree, but, but that's not what our Epicurus was, talk- okay. was talking about, <laughs> right? right? So, th- so that kind of category, I have the same effect as well. I, ha- I enjoy having these, these very long conversations with complete strangers that often point out interesting things to me. But that's not a f- case of friendship. Uh, certainly not in the, case, in the sense in which Epicurus was talking about. It's simply a case of you know, intellectual activity of another, of another type. Yeah, um, although I do feel sort of a connection with people who really think like me and who, who really are interested in the same things that I'm interested in, having that opportunity to interact with them. Anyway, this is a side uh, we may have, tangent, we, just, we just found out that we have different psychologies in terms of connectivity. Okay. But anyway, back to Epicurus. So he said, for instance, it is impossible to live a pleasant life without living wisely and well and justly. And it is impossible to live wisely and well and justly without living a pleasant life. And by pleasant life, he meant a life with friends. In fact, he practiced what he, what he, what he preached because his uh, garden, which was his, his, uh, his school, um, was essentially a, a co-op of friends. They, they, they were living together and you know, eating together, sleeping together, and so on and so forth. Now, the reason I mention this is because there is a connection with, with recent, uh, recent research in, uh, in cognitive science and psychology. And this is something that really caught my attention recently um, because in preparation for a chapter of a, of a new book that I'm writing. And this is research that was done by Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. It's fairly controversial, uh, but when I looked into it, 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 the results are fascinating. So what they did was to, uh, they looked at a number of human behavioral traits that spread among friends following the same dynamics as an infectious disease. Mm. In other words, if you do something, your friends are going to start at a much higher chance of actually starting doing that, the same thing. And this can have both positive effects and negative effects. So for instance, uh, if you develop obesity at some point in your life, your close friends now have, irrespective of other factors, so ones that you control for other factors, a whopping 57% chance of doing the same. Uh, not only that, but even friends of your friends will be affected. They are going to have a, a, uh, a, a rate of 20% more likely. Uh, they're going to be 20% more likely of developing obesity and so on and so forth. Uh, the same is true for smoking, for instance. Your friends are going to have 67% chances of quitting if you, do, if you quit. Their friends are 36% chance of quitting if, if you quit and so on. And that applies to alcoholism, depression, and even happiness itself. In other words, if you are happy, your friends are much like, more likely to be happy. Um, this is interesting because the, the, the dynamics is, is interesting. It spreads like a disease, which means that it's, very, it's a very powerful way of altering your, your, your friends and network, uh, uh, not only mood, temporary mood, but in fact, sort of more long-term uh, health, both physical and, and, and otherwise. But again, it goes back to the idea that we are fundamentally social animals, as uh, Aristotle again pointed out, and that therefore a, a huge component of our happiness depends on our social interactions, mm-hmm. uh, except for those of us who are psychopaths, of course. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, that's, that's really interesting, and I've, I've heard about that in other contexts before, but I, th- I think it's tricky to, I suppose now we should get into the question of measuring happiness, because right. people's self-reports of happiness are seem to be really sensitive to the social to the culture in which they live and the the attitudes about happy, happiness in that culture. I mean, that could be their yeah. country, but it could also be their social groups um, and so on. So, you know, it's not clear that if you live in in a culture that really values happiness, in which happiness is seen almost as a virtue, in which you're expected to be happy, 
Um, it's not clear that that's, that's really going to allow us to make objective measurements of how happy people are compared to, say, a culture in which reporting that you're happy would be seen as a sign of selfishness or of laziness, that you're not you know, working hard and sacrificing for the collective, something right. like that. Now, that's true. Uh, there, are, there are ways, however, around it. I mean, certainly one, the, uh, we, we, we don't want to claim that this research is anything like you know, fundamental physics in terms of precisions of, of what they actually do. Uh, but there are a couple of ways around it. So one way around that, of course, is that you don't use the word happiness to begin with. Uh, you use, either you use cultural appropriate terms uh, that vary from culture to culture, or more generally, in fact, better, you simply uh, ask the person how, you know, uh, how they think about their life, how they rate the quality of their life, how they rate the, the, you know, uh, the contentness, whatever, the, whatever other terms. Like probably, on a scale of 1 to 10? Right, yeah. something like that. But Although even that is vulnerable to what I've, I've heard called the squishing effect, in which if you, if you and I each rate our happiness as being a 7 out of 10, there's no guarantee that we're actually experiencing the same level of happiness. So maybe I'm imagining a scale where 10 means you're content most of the time, whereas maybe you're imagining a scale in which 10 is like the happiest person who's ever lived. So to you, a 7 might represent a higher level of happiness than a 7 does when I say it. Yeah, that's correct. Now, the way around that um, in, that has been uh, tried in a few studies is to measure physiological correlates. Oh, interesting. And, like what? Uh, like stress levels. Um, and which you can measure with, you know, blood samples or, or even with, uh, you know, uh, cutaneous uh, electrical measurements and that sort of stuff. And it turns out that there is a very, very good relationship between self-reported long-term happiness and stress level. Uh, obviously, it's an inverse relationship, <laughs> meaning that the more, the happier you think uh, you are about, you know, self-reported happiness is, the lower it is the, the level of stress at the individual level. And this seems to be also valid across cultures. That is, you can actually make predictions just based on stress measurements um, uh, about the average level of self-reported happiness in, in different countries. Interesting. You know, that reminds me of a study by someone named Dan Habron, who he was comparing people working in a quiet office to people working in a noisy office. And they both reported equivalent levels of stress. But the people in the noisy office showed elevated levels of epinephrine, and, and they performed worse on, on certain tasks, like they were less persistent in solving difficult puzzles. So it seems like there was some experiential difference between the two groups, but not a difference that they had conscious access to, which I think gets at the question of whether it's actually possible for us to be mistaken about how happy we are. You know, so on the one hand, happiness seems like the sort of thing that's only defined in terms of your perception. So like, it wouldn't make any sense to say, I'm happier than I feel I am, any more than it would make sense to say, that cake is actually more delicious than it tastes. You know? <laughs> um, but, but the fact that these... Although a cake could be looking more delicious than it actually is. Sure, tastes. sure, of course. No, you're, you're right, absolutely. Uh, and that is an interesting uh, question, again, that, that has been addressed um, in, in philosophy by, for, for a long time, which is, you know, does it make even any sense to say that somebody could be mistaken about what makes them happy? Right. Um, and for Aristotle, the answer was un unquestionably yes. Of course you can be mistaken. Because if you haven't right. reflected on, on what, what it is that makes, that makes meaning for a meaningful life for you. Now, by the way, the, that answer doesn't imply that there is only one correct answer to the question of what makes for a happy life. Uh, that's, that's a common mistake in some readings of the philosophical literature. Uh, that is, it's not that Aristotle was saying, look, there is only one way to, to be happy. Here it is. I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, he was very conscious of the fact that there are different paths um, to eudaimonia, or uh, if you were a Buddhist, there's different paths to enlightenment, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but 
but the thing is, there are also many wrong paths. And so the idea is that it's not that anything goes, that, you know, that, that there is a sort of a random distribution of things and whatever makes you happy, it's, it's when anything goes. Uh, the idea is that there, are, there, there is a variety of numbers of ways of getting to eudaimonia, but there is also a large number of ways that you don't. And that the purpose, again, of, of sort of a philosophical investigation in the case of Aristotle or modern psychological research is to try to figure out what some of these factors are. I want to bring one up because we cannot talk about happiness without talking about money. Mm-hmm. The question is, of course, does money, in fact, buy you happiness? Right, right. There is empirical research these days that actually tells you that. The answer is yes and no. It, it depends. Um, so the first – so I'm going I'm to bring up a couple of, of uh, actual data, and, and, and then maybe we can talk about what, what they might mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one is um, uh, an observation, for instance, that, that is valid across um, Western countries, uh, but I have the data for the United States in particular. Uh, the gross domestic product of the United States has steadily increased from 1978 to 2008. In fact, I have the numbers. It went from 2.3 to 14.4 trillion. And yet, measures of self-reported happiness have stayed essentially the same throughout the, same, throughout, throughout the period, while, in fact, they were climbing before. Uh, so that means that um, the, the usual interpretation of this, and this has been replicated in several, in several other countries, the usual interpretation is that there is some correlation between GDP and uh, self-reported satisfaction of life and happiness, uh, presumably because if people tend to be too poor, they're unlik- unlikely to be happy with their life. But beyond a certain point, the two completely disconnect uh, because self-reported happiness depends not just on you know wealth or income, but it depends on other things. And and those other things. Uh, have brought the United Nations to produce a different kind of statistic in in the last several years, which they call the Human Development Index. And the Human Development Index actually includes includes not only uh, the GDP of a a country uh, as a measure of wealth, but it also includes a measure of health, um, which can be quantified by a variety of number of parameters, including access to health, of course, as well as education. And so those are the three parameters the United Nations found that when combined, they actually make for a very good predictor of, uh, of whether, you know, the, the average level of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the, the other interesting statistic about money and happiness is this. Um, researchers have been able to find, to, to quantify that the effect of extra income on self-reported happiness, and this is, this is again, data from the U.S. And the results are, I think, pretty amusing. It turns out, for, for instance, that every extra $1,000 correspond on average to an increase in of 0.002 on a social science index of happiness, where this, the index varies between zero and one, so it's you know two per thousand. Right. Now, to put that in, in context, because the numbers per se don't don't seem to they're difficult to to, to analyze, but to put it in context, it means that if you make an extra hundred thousand uh, dollars a year, your happiness will increase about the same quantity that separates married from unmarried people where married people usually are happier, huh. or employed from unemployed people, where the employed people usually are happier. Of course, if you're unemployed and you, I give you $100,000, it makes perfect, perfect sense why you <laughs> will be happy, right? But the, the idea is that so money does, in fact, improve self-reported happiness in a way that is comparable to other indicators, such as being married or not being married, but only in fairly large quantities. Because, you know, $100,000 is not a small, a small chunk of, of change, even by the standards of American society. So that's why I said earlier that the, the answer to the question of whether 
money buys you happiness is, well, yes and no. It depends on what we're talking about. Right. No, that's, that's really interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, partly, I think it's... I've long been skeptical of the idea that people that people's self-reported happiness is actually a good measure of how happy they feel. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that it's not. And so we get this, this self-fulfilling effect where if people are under the impression that something is going to make them happier, um, say being married or, or having kids, if you, if you think of those things as being evidence that you've succeeded, that your, your life is on track, um, right. then, then when people ask you, especially when they ask you the, the sort of broad zoom out, look at your life kind of question, like how happy are you overall with your life? It just seems logical to me that you would be more likely to, to say, yes, I'm more satisfied with my life, but that, but that that might not actually correspond on a, you know, a, an experiential basis to, to being happier day to day than people who yeah. aren't. You're right. So, that, that reminds me of a, of a survey a few years ago that had to do with sexual satisfaction in women of different religious background. I read about this. And it turned out that uh, Southern Baptist women were the most sexually satisfied. And of course you would say, really? Right. <laughs> um, somehow yeah, I, so, I doubt it. <laughs> so that's, that's another thing. There's right. the effect of people's expectations of right. how good a life they could be having. Right. So, but you mentioned the case of having children. Now, the case mm-hmm. of having children is interesting because um, the last time I looked into the data, uh, there, there's two interesting components, two interesting things going on, which again remind me a lot of the distinction that, that sort of the, the Aristotle and his, and his friends were making. And that is, um, as it turns out, having, having children incre- increases the, your, your self-reported happiness on a long term, meaning that people tend to be satisfied when they, they, they like the idea that they have children. But when they're uh, asked to report on a moment-to-moment uh, happiness, you know, right. how are you feeling right now, mm-hmm. they tend to feel much more miserable than people that don't have children. Now, that seems like a contradiction, but it isn't, because it really has to do with the, the difference, which is crucial, between moment-to-moment feelings uh, about your life and sort of what do you think when you think of your life as a project, as, as a you know, long-term thing that, with certain things, certain goals that you, wanna, you want to achieve. Again, I think that the analogy there with going to the gym is, is pertinent. You know, when I go to the gym on a moment-to-moment basis, and if you ever ask me at that moment, you say, how do you feel? Well, I'd rather not be doing this. Uh, but how do I feel in general about the fact that I, that I um, exercise regularly and, and I get some certain kinds of benefits, uh, you know, physically and otherwise? Well, I feel very good about my general uh, decision of, of taking that course of action. Well, but with the case of going to the gym, there shouldn't be much of a discrepancy between your moment-to-moment happiness and your overall happiness because... Really? I mean, you, you actually enjoy going on a treadmill? Well, no, no, no. I, I mean, if, well, but if, if the researcher, you know, in this hypothetical experiment were doing it properly, he would, be, he would be asking you about your experiential happiness, not just when you're at the gym. I mean, the reason you go to the gym is not to be happy right then. It's to be happy overall. Right, right, so, right. No, that's true. That's true. Now, what, with, all I, all I the, meant was that when I'm on the actual treadmill, I curse myself and I say, what the heck am I doing here? I don't like right. this. I don't enjoy it. But... but if you ask me, well, then why you do it? I said, well, because overall it, makes, it does make me feel like that. Right, but the better. interesting thing with the parents was that, I mean, you would think that if they are getting benefits from taking care of their children, even when they're not doing the dirty work like changing diapers and you know, settling squabbles, that, that those benefits should show up somewhere in the, in the experiential data, that you know, they should get some benefit you know, overall throughout the course of, of all of these you know, day-to-day measurements added up over time, and yet it doesn't actually seem like 
they come out ahead of the non-parents, even though they report being overall more satisfied with their life. Well, I don't see that's the uh, that's interesting because I don't think they should add up because if they're measuring two different things, they shouldn't add up. If if uh, if day to day, if moment to moment happiness actually measures your your instantaneous feelings of something, but your instantaneous feelings are not in fact related, or at least not necessarily related to the way in which you think about your life in general, then actually I don't expect uh, a summation of individual moments to to add up to life. I mean, literally it does, but not in the way in which you, you look at it. I, yeah. I want your, your your impression about this, however, because there's some inter- more interesting data that I, that I found uh, um, recently about this. So people looked, researchers looked at, the, at what they call the, the structure of self-reported happiness. That is, okay, it's inter- interesting to ask people uh, whether they're happy or not in the long term and so on and so forth. But then the more interesting thing is when you're trying to figure out uh, statistically what are the best predictor of those people's response. And so here is a summary of, of a few, and, and I think this, this, this will give us some more food for thought. First of all, women tend to be happier than men, uh, mm. number one. Uh, not a lot, but a significant, statistically dif- uh, significant amount. Predictably, of course, wealthier and healthier uh, and more educated people tend to be happier. Uh, married people are happier than unmarried ones, as I said earlier. Again, on average, uh, in the United States, whites are more happy than any other ethnic group. Um, exercising and eating fruit apparently is associated with happiness, um, while being fat has a negative relation with subjective well-being. And having children in your household, as we just said, was one in, while in fact it had meaning to someone's life, has a surprisingly negative effect on on happiness, or at least surprising for some people. Um, now. That being said, it also turns out that men and women, although women's happiness is, as I said, higher than men, men's and women's happiness seems to be affected pretty much by the same factor and in pretty much the same way. In direct mm-hmm. contradiction to these pop culture ideas that you know, men are from Mars and women are from other planets and so on and so forth. No, as it turns out, exactly the same kinds of things that make men happy, make women happy, mm-hmm. the same sort of statistical structure to it. It's just that apparently women enjoy more for whatever reason, that they're actually happy with their, own, with their own life. Interesting. So out of those, those um, um, uh, uh, predictors, do you, you, you think there's something that we couldn't have predicted based on you know, sort of common sense? You know, or, or is there something actually surprising about this? Because you know, to me, it wasn't that surprising that wealthier, healthier, and more educated people tend to be happy. Um, it's like, okay, it's nice to know the numbers, but it's not particularly surprising. On the, one, on the other hand, uh, for instance, the idea that you know, um, uh, having children makes you unhappy, that does go, does go, go against sort of common yeah. sense. I mean, that is, that is surprising. And I think you know, to stick up for the more obvious, well, duh, in other news, the sky is still blue findings. <laughs> you know, that's, there's, there's, it's kind of a thankless job doing research that leads to obvious you know, counter, common sense conclusions um, but you still have to do it because sometimes you get the non-common sense conclusions. Right. So you have to do the research to separate the one from the other. Right. And that's, by the way, that's ju- not just true in, in psychology. Um, the joke ima- among organismal biologists who are not ecologists is that ecology is the elucidation of the obvious. <laughs> so now, of course, we, I just lost right. all of our ecology um, listeners on, on that one. Okay, now, what about the fact that, um, so remember that when I, when I said earlier on that, that Plato thought that there was a connection between individual and sort of societal essential right. structure and happiness. Turns out, again, that there seems to be data supporting that, that idea, as counterintuitive as that, that might be. Uh, the, the researcher I looked into it, for instance, you know, there's all this stuff that, that ranks nations uh, uh, as being more happy or less happy, right? 
Um, so I'll give you a, a, a list of, of, of these things in a minute. But then the interesting question, again, is what are the, the predictors of these degrees of happiness and unhappiness? Now, turns out that the latest survey for which I have the data, which I think is from a couple of years ago, the happiest nations are uh, Ireland, Switzerland, Mexico, interestingly, mm-hmm. the United States, Great Britain, New Zealand, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. You might have noticed the disproportionate amount of European, in particular Northern European mm-hmm. countries in, in this test. Turns out the most unhappy places in the world, they all come from the same geographical area. Russia, Bulgaria, Latvia, Croatia, Hungary, and mm-hmm. Macedonia. So it's all of the Eastern Bloc. It's, at the moment, is the un- most unhappy place in the world, uh, which is interesting. But then the question is, well, okay, so what makes a difference? What, what are the predictors of these, of these differences? And it turns out that, um, by by and large, the major predictors uh, of these differences are uh, low unemployment and low inflation. That increases people's happiness. Low inequality at a a structural societal level. Strong welfare states. High public spending. Low pollution. High levels of democratic participation. And a strong network of friends, which would make make Epicurus um, particularly happy. Um, so the idea is that, that, that we actually start having a, uh, getting a, a, a pretty good look in terms of empirical uh, support to the kinds of things at a societal level that makes people happy, which don't seem to be very different from the kinds of things that make people individually happy. And again, Plato would not have been surprised probably. <laughs> uh, I read uh, one comment from a happiness researcher who said that you – Basically, if you're a happiness researcher, you can't not be liberal, which sounds, <laughs> sounds vindicated by your data. Yeah, exactly. No, it seems to me that uh, the, the, what I just described is the, is the, the classic uh, Northern European you know, social, uh, social, social liberal society. Uh, it's you know, low, again, unemployment, inflation, low inequality, strong welfare, and so on and so forth. Um, another interesting thing that I, that I thought was um, uh, that struck me, this one in, in, actually in some sense is sort of counterintuitive. Um, and this is the relationship between life satisfaction and age. So what happens to people of different mm-hmm. age? Um, and it turns out that uh, uh, it's, a, it's a complex relationship, but it's essentially it's a U-shaped function, uh, which means that people tend to hit a minimum of happiness with their life at some point in the middle. But that middle, and so and they, they tend to be much happier early on when they're very young, and counterintuitively, I think, um, much happier also when they're older. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that the United States and European countries have the exact same U-shape function, but it's shifted. In the United States, the most unhappy age of parent is 40. Hmm. While in Europe, the most uh, unhappy age tends to be around 54. So there's 14 years difference between the two. I have no idea why there is that, that difference, why Americans hit the bottom earlier than, <laughs> than Europeans. I could come up with so many narratives, <laughs> including the American focus on youth and beauty that... That would be that interesting, would. and that's that's a testimony. Especially of forty. I'm curious if there's like a distinct drop off at forty. Now which I looked at could the data. Could be attributed to people's psychological right. views about right. that round number. No, I looked at the data. It really looked like it looks like a very smooth oh, U function, uh, but the bottom is in fact uh, of that function is in fact at forty uh, for for Americans. My, that, your your hypothesis is interesting. I mean, that, and that could be of course tested um, empirically. Uh, we had a, a commenter who asked about the views of someone named Pascal Bruckner, who's he's a French intellectual, and basically he argues that the modern focus on happiness is actually oppressive. 
So basically, he says... Leave it to a French to, uh, to argue that. <laughs> I'm sure he said it with a, a sullen pout on his Gallic lips and a cigarette dangling from his fingers. Exactly. Um, so basically, he says, being happy and fulfilled now has become this duty in modern society. And so we feel guilty and inadequate if we're ever unhappy. Um, it reminded me of this uh, Calvin Hobbes cartoon where Calvin says, <clears throat> here I am, happy and content, but not euphoric. So now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the point is interesting in, in a limited sense, I think. That is, it is true that if it becomes, especially in the United States, if it becomes sort of a societal expectation that, you know, you have to be happy, particularly mm -hmm. because you have so many things and particularly because you have access to so many resources uh, and somehow you're not because, you know, whatever, your set point is low, for instance. Uh, or your personal circumstances, or you're not working you know, mindfully at it, and so on and so forth, then, of course, that can get you into a, into a spiral of, of increased unhappiness. And, of course, that also doesn't take into account um, you know, more or less pathological situations. So you know, depressed people tend to be obviously unhappy, but they also tend to be much more realistic about uh, what's going on in life as mm -hmm. opposed to, to happy people. Happy people tend to, tend to have what is called an optimist bias. So, you know, I don't think that there is necessarily uh, a big problem, particularly actually in European societies. In Ameri American societies, there's, there's always much more of um, a strict level of, expect of high expectations about one's, you know, the, American, the whole idea of the American dream is that things have to improve constantly. A few years ago, there, there was an interesting survey comparing Americans and Europeans' attitudes toward uh, both their current status, their current level you know, uh, of satisfaction, and what they were expecting from the future. And the, the striking difference was that Americans uh, tend to be very optimistic about the future, but very discontent about the, the cur their current situation. Mm -hmm. And for Europeans, it's exactly the other way around. They are not particularly optimistic oh, that things will get better in the future, but they're pretty happy about, about where they are right now. So it's, uh, um, it's an interesting distinction between the two, difference between the two cultures. Huh. No, I, so I basically agree with you. I, I do think that there is some, some truth to the idea that focusing on happiness is, a, is misguided, just in that it, it seems like pursuing happiness is not actually, I mean, actively pursuing happiness with that conscious goal in mind is not actually the best way to achieve happiness. I think it was John Stuart Mill who said, ask yourself whether you are happy and you cease to be so. The only <laughs> chance is to treat not happiness, but some end external to it as the purpose of life. So basically, we, we all need to just figure out together, philosophers, psychologists, everyone, what are the things that make you happy, and then pursue those things and forget about the fact that our ultimate goal is happiness. That's right. And that's how we'll be happy. So yep. It's a little mental mind jujitsu. Sounds good to me. All right, we are out of time, so let's wrap up this section and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a book called Discover Your Inner Economist. It's by uh, an economist at George Mason University named Tyler Cowen. He's best known for writing the blog Marginal Revolution, which is it's just as fantastic. It's one of my favorite blogs. Um, it's about economics, but it's, it's about lots of other things as well. Uh, Tyler's really a, a polymath 
And so the book is all about applying the basic principles of economic reasoning, um, like incentives and diminishing marginal returns and comparative advantage, applying those principles to your everyday life. Um, one of the other things that I love about Tyler is that he's even more obsessed with food and cooking and dining than I am. In fact, he, really? he has a whole separate blo- blog called The Ethnic Dining Guide to the D.C. metropolitan area. So if you live down there, uh, you should check it out. Um, and, and so my favorite part of the book was his section on how to get as much enjoyment as possible from dining out and cooking. So I'll give you just a couple examples of his tips. Um, when you're eating out in your city, he says your best bet is to pay attention to relative rents. So you want to look for restaurants in low-rent neighborhoods that are close to high-rent neighborhoods. So that's going to mean that their costs are lower, but they're close enough to where the foodies live that they'll be catering to the high foodie standards. So in Manhattan, there are better restaurants on 9th Avenue, which is far on the west side, or on 1st Avenue, which is far on the east side, than there are on 5th Avenue, which is right in the middle. And even turning the corner can make a difference. So Um, In Manhattan, the avenues go north-south, and they're generally busier than the cross streets, and therefore they have correspondingly higher rents. So if you look for restaurants on the cross streets, you're going to find a better deal um, and also likely to find better food. That's also Um, good advice for buying an apartment in Manhattan, as it turns out. There you go. You also (laughs) want to go to the exact same areas. So, And then Tyler also says if you want to do a, a food tour, if you want to be a food tourist in some other country, he suggests aiming for countries with high inequality. So and the reason for that, that sounds a little exploitative. Well, the United States is a perfect pick, Ben. Sure, there you go. All right. We did liberal <laughs> politics enough in the we first did. part of the episode. Uh, so uh, the reasoning for that was if you want to support an amazing cuisine, it helps to have a wealthy upper class who's the market for that cuisine but also a poor underclass who's willing to work for relatively low wages. I don't know. Preparing I, and I don't know food. that I want to hear this. Okay, fine. <laughs> so Tyler says both Mexico and Haiti are exemplars of haute cuisine in the mm. Western Hemisphere. And then by contrast, he says France, the reason that France has been slipping gradually from its spot at the top of the fine dining hierarchy is because of the, the high wages and the really stringent labor laws in France that have, have pushed up the cost of running a restaurant. Of course, the French are not aware of that. But uh, <laughs> my pick um, is much darker than yours, unfortunately. Um, it is an article, a, long, a very long article, but definitely worth reading, uh, that appeared in The American Scholar, and you can find it on americanscholar.org, by Harriet Washington. Um, Harriet Washington is a, the author of Medical Apartheid, A Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. Uh, she won the 07 National Book uh, Critics Circle Award for nonfiction. Uh, her most recent book is called Deadly Monopolies, The Shocking Corporate Takeover of Life Itself. And this article is uh, will give you as many reasons you could possibly dream of to be skeptical and even cynical about Big Pharma. Mm. Uh, it is a really in-depth uh, commentary about how drug makers uh, not only uh, compromise you know, doctors by buying them out and, and that sort of stuff, but they also undermine top medical journals and skew medical research. It is one documented case after another of uh, Big Pharma basically buying uh, uh, the publications of certain, certain results or the non-publication of results that are not favorable. Uh, the idea is that even major journals in the medical field, including the New, Ju- the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and so on and so forth, uh, have repeatedly run afoul of uh, publishing things that should not have been published or, or not publishing things that should have been published. So it's a really in-depth commentary. As I said, um, once you read it, you will have, unfortunately, plenty of ammunitions to be uh, skeptical of um, 
big pharma, I wouldn't suggest that just on that on those grounds you turn to you know the the placebo effect of homeopathy. But it certainly will open your eyes about how uh, modern medical research um, it's got essentially uh, to be largely a matter of marketing and uh, and very little, increasingly little, uh, a matter of of science. Very interesting. Thanks, Massimo. Uh, we are all out of time, so this concludes another episode of the Rationally Speaking podcast. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.